Welcome to Saltier Politics. This week we have another guest. We have Mark Schwartz from CBS. He joined us earlier last year. And Julie, this was a great conversation with him that I really think people will enjoy. It's a fabulous conversation, especially talking about news gathering at a time when it's difficult to go outside. Um, and especially for those people based in New York, which is every major TV network, aside from CNN, which obviously also has a major presence in New York, but um, impossible to go out there and collect news in the old fashioned way, but yet they do it and they do it at great peril to their own lives. So it was a great discussion and I'm super happy that we were able to have it. What, how was your week? How's being stuck in Florida? Um, it's, it's weird. Not being at my usual routine has been different. Being home with my parents, I've been eating at five every day. And I've been working hard. I've been I've been working 10, 11 hour days. Wow. That's great. Well, listen, the fact that you still have a job and you can work is right. more than six so, point something million people can say this week. So how is that's, how that's, is teaching? I don't want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> it is the hardest thing I've ever done. What subject did you find that you realized you did or didn't like and that you're just really hating to revisit? So uh, what I'm hating to revisit is actually the subject that I loved best when I was little, which is syntax um, and writing. And um, I think it's because I have no tolerance, as you know, from the clapback years for people who don't know how to spell or um, use grammar properly. And that turns out to be my seven-year-old, not because there's something wrong with him, but because he's seven. And I just have no patience. And again, if I, you know, homonyms, which is there, there, and there, like I went there, they're going there, and I'm talking about their trip. Um, if you don't get the spelling of that right, then I start getting frustrated, both if you tweet me, mean tweet messages, Twitter messages, and also if you're related to me. So I, I find that I don't have the patience to be a good seven, seven-year-old teacher for a seven-year-old. I just, I, I don't, I'm not cut out for it. Um, teachers, I realize I've always thought this, but now I believe it with every fiber of my being need to be paid, um, what brain surgeons are paid. I would rather do brain surgery than teach second grade. And I say that as somebody who only failed out of ninth grade biology. So I just, I don't know what to say other than this is absolutely the most difficult thing I've ever done. And I find myself losing patience, which is not fair to my son, but nevertheless, here we are. I, I, this is just bizarre, Julie. I don't, I don't know when I'm going to get back to New York or when, when it's safe enough to travel in a plane, because then when I go back, uh, the person who I live with is worried about like, did I catch something on the plane and then do quarantine for 14 days? So. Yikes. Um, that's an excellent question. What do you, what do you, what did you guys decide? We're just going to keep writing it out. Is she at home with her parents or is she back in the city? Um, she is at home with her parents. So. Wow. Yeah, it's um, it's complicated, but you have been watching something which I'm appalled by. Um, oh, which you Tiger King. Obsessed with. Tiger King, which is possibly the worst thing I've ever seen in my life to the point where it, you know, I have trouble sleeping at night. But apparently this is this is the sleeping aid that I have been waiting for my whole life. It comes on, I pass out. I have been enjoying the hell out of it. I've been watching it with my dad and um, just seeing his reactions to a lot of this, he's a lot of the dumb stuff that they say, and you're like, is this real? And then it gets dumber and dumber. And then just the conversations at the end of it, like did Carol kill her husband, which I don't know or care if she did. A couple of things. One, <laughs> I've, if I want to see an exotic animal, I guess I'll go to the zoo or to a safari. I don't understand this whole obsession. Did you see though how many votes he got when he ran for governor of Oklahoma? Sure. Right? That was yes. But that says a lot about our country as well, which I thought was I, really interesting. I had the same reaction. I was like, now I understand how Donald Trump got elected. Every single one of those people, I guarantee you, voted for Donald Trump. Right. That, because what they were saying about him, they're like, you know what? He says what he means. And yep. I'm like, this is what happens. Oh, yeah. Even if what he means is completely insane. And by the way, I don't believe for one second 
that that guy cares about animals or cares about anything other than self-promotion. That is about, about about the 19-year-old boys he seduces into marrying him in exchange for meth. Nope. Um, none, of whom, none of whom, from what I can tell, are gay. He just wants um, a warm body to be next to. I don't, yeah, like, like that guy died. His One of his alleged husbands died. He didn't seem that broken up about it. No, he put on oh. a show that he was broken up about it. That's my point. That's what's so concerning about this. So why, like, to me, this is like reality TV. This is the difference between you and me. You love reality TV. I hate reality TV. I'm embarrassed for people on reality TV. The same way I'm embarrassed watching these people. Even though they're not getting exploited, they're actually being kind of exploitative. And then also, and I asked a good criminal defense attorney about this, if I were to suddenly kill my husband and who was worth millions of dollars and then somehow make jokes about this and, and, and not take it that seriously, how, how do I not get indicted? They, can, they indict people all the time without a body. Right. So what was, what was the answer that you received? Well, he is a criminal defense attorney, so the reaction was, of course she shouldn't get indicted. But he would say that she shouldn't get indicted even if she was holding her smoking gun. So he's not he's not the best person to ask. But seriously, hypothetically, how, what? I mean, is it obvious? This is like OJ's. It's not obvious that she, I mean, OJ got indicted. Right. How did, how did this woman not get indicted? How is she walking around? And who's the second well, husband? And how come she's married? She's gotten two, three men to marry her. I don't get that. That, Who are these men? He was weird. I just, I, I it was cringeworthy to watch and difficult to watch, but it was like yeah. watching just a train wreck. You just noticed the wedding picture where she's wearing her wedding dress with a leash around his neck? Oh my gosh. That was, I just like looked at my dad and was just like, oh God, and just cringe. And he's like, I don't get this guy. And what? I didn't. It was, it was a, I guess it really just made me escape my reality for the time while I was watching that, which was nice. You're in the same state that that woman lives in. That is your reality. She's from, she's from Florida, my friend. You I, gotta own it. These are your Touche, Julie. Yeah. That, I don't have anything else to say about that. Really say. Why don't we get to the show? Here comes Mark Tours from CBS News. Welcome back to Saltier Politics, Mark Schwartz. Not only is he one of my closest friends, but he's the kick-ass national assignment editor at CBS News. He's here to talk to us today about everything from coronavirus to Bernie Sanders dropping out of the race. Let's get into it. Mark, welcome. How's it going, Mark? Thank you for having me back. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me back. I really appreciate it. We're so happy to have you. What Tell us what it's like being a news editor at a time when the news is moving really fast, but people are not. It's actually a very interesting experience. I would say the last three weeks have been. Um, CBS News was impacted by the coronavirus pretty early on, uh, as we've had a couple of positive people in the building. Uh, so we had to clear out real fast. This was before it really, really exploded. Like, we didn't have full shutdown yet. So we've been working from home for a while. So it's been a huge adjustment, essentially running a network news operation from your dining room. Meanwhile, you still have teams out in the field doing their thing. And, you know, just because I'm in my dining room, like you said, doesn't mean that news stops. So I still have to gather news as hard as ever because it's never been so important to get the most accurate information, the newest information. And Lord knows there's a lot of disinformation out there right now. So I'm more passionate than ever to make sure that, you know, the audience that I'm serving gets the best information that's out there. Do you guys feel at CBS that you have to correct all the misinformation that's coming out? And unfortunately, it's not just coming out from conspiracy theorists or anybody else. Um, you have the president putting out things that fact checkers have just said is completely either false or unproven. Um, do you feel that your job is not just to report on the news, but also to correct misinformation that's been coming out as a result of this virus? I feel like the conspiracy theories are in steroids more than usual in the last couple of months. More than ever. I, I think, I think the last time we, 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 we spoke, right. The question was, you know, you asked me, like, why doesn't the mainstream media call 
Donald Trump a liar more. Right. And I think I think I said something along the lines of, well, you can still point out the misinformation, point out the mistruth, correct the record without calling them a liar. And I think what you're seeing is that now, right? That's what you're seeing now. So if if Donald Trump, let's say, promotes a medicine that is not necessarily scientifically proven yet, you know, you're not seeing the media saying Donald Trump is a liar. But what you're seeing is we have have three doctors on staff at CBS News and we have them saying, okay, here's what the science says. Here's why it may work. Here's why it may not work. But here's why we can say that as of now, it's not a proven technique yet. So we're we're correcting the record in real time in a very non-divisive way, but still in a way to make sure that the whole audience, whether you're Democrat, independent, Republican, gets the accurate information. So, Mark, having a lot of nurses in my family, and we just spoke to a doctor last week, it seems as if the medical community is super apprehensive about what they're having to contend with because of the misinformation that's being put out there for non-medical reasons. How how do you contend with writing misinformation and deciding what how to spend time on news and spending time on delivering news? So I guess writing misinformation, because that will take time, versus delivering new, accurate news. So I think we have to weigh each bit of, unfortunately, there's so many, we have to weigh each bit of misinformation. And if you see something starting to pick up a lot of steam, and if you start seeing like millions of people saying like, oh, I think this might cure me or this might prevent it. And you say, oh, this is a problem. We see this is percolating. We need to nip this in the bud. So I, I, I think by that, you're still doing your job. You know, you're still you're still informing the public. You're not being particularly biased. You know, you're not saying, you know, conservatives are are deliberately um, downplaying situation or, 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 or deliberately trying to hawk a drug. But you can still say, hey, don't get this drug yet. It's not proven yet. So you, you almost have a bedside manner. It's like you're, you're combining a bedside manner while informing the public. I don't think, by the way, I don't want to put this just on conservatives. You know, I'm in New York. Emily's in Florida. I think, Mark, you're in New York as well, right? From your apartment right now. And we have a mayor of New York who's the last thing, the last person you consider to be conservative, but who did at the outset of this say, yeah, go about your business. Not a big deal. Um, Way after a lot of doctors and scientists said, no, actually, you should take precautions and and take care as to what you're doing. The CDC, for example, which, again, is, is run by supposedly trained scientists and doctors, first said no reason to put on face covering unless you have the coronavirus. Now they're saying if you go outside, you should put on face covering. Um, it becomes very hard as the disseminator of the news, I would imagine, to actually have the ability to go out and talk about things from an authoritative standpoint when even whether it's political leaders like de Blasio, I'm, I'm putting Trump aside, but political leaders like de Blasio or the CDC is giving conflicting information. Um, how do you parse that? How do you give what you consider to be the best possible uh, scientifically based advice when even scientists sometimes don't get it right right away or have conflicting information they're putting out? Well, I right. Been, so I think I, go on. I'm sorry. I've just been seeing on the ground with like a lot of different people I've spoken to. I just interviewed someone today. She's this owner of a whiskey company. She bought $40,000 and is still buying worth of price gouged masks and then just sending them out to healthcare workers because she's like, we don't have time to talk about prices. I can afford them. I'm just going to buy them and then send them out to price or healthcare workers. And she was making the point that the people who don't have the masks, you know, are, are the orderlies, are the people, are police chiefs, firemen on the front lines. And it's like interesting to talk to these people on the ground. And Mark, I bet you are too, talking to different reporters being like, these people aren't getting, and it's not widely publicized because you don't think about all the orderlies and all of the people in the hospitals and also others on the front line as well. It's also incredibly overwhelming because You know, the term essential workers become pretty prominent over the last three weeks. And 
you quickly realize how many essential workers this country has, right? You know, when you think of essential workers, sure, you think of doctors, sure, you think of firefighters and police and other first responders. But now we're talking about, and as we should, grocery store workers who, you know, keep the food supply chain running and and truck drivers and delivery drivers. And, you know, as we grew reliant on a gig economy, these gig workers have essentially become essential workers. So these people therefore need protection. So if you're talking about all these people needing protection, that's a lot of people who need gloves, masks, hand sanitizer. And one thing that has been evidently clear through this crisis is we were nowhere near prepared for that to help these people. And that's a really, really scary thought. But it's the reality. Yeah. And I'll go a step further. Um, I went to my local supermarket here in the Upper West Side I would say two weeks ago, the shelves were full and stocked. I went back again a few days ago and there was noticeably less stuff. And it's not because they haven't gotten their daily deliveries because their own workers who are part of the supply chain, as you talked about, are getting ill and calling out. And either the food is not getting to them somewhere along the way or the people who are stocking the shelves are not stocking them. Um, Last night was the first night of Passover. I went to Citarella on the Upper West Side, and lo and behold, they were out of matzah by 1 p.m. <laughs> and I'm thinking, do you guys know where you are? You're on the Upper West Side. Of all the places, you got a matzah. But um, that's never happened before, ever. Um, you know, I, I don't remember in the 40 years that I've lived in this country, I remember my former Soviet Union days where there were lines to get into the store and there was not enough food on the shelves, but never has anything been out of stock that's such a staple um, as it is for so many people up here. So uh, you're so right about that. And, and what scares me is that we don't think of these people as essential workers or we don't treat them. They're making minimum wage, a lot of these people, and they're putting their life on the line to feed us. Um, and, and that's just something that I can't imagine many people give a lot of thought to. I don't know how you even contend with that other than to put a spotlight on their stories almost on a daily basis. I hope somebody does. I understand it's not the job of CBS News to do um, stories on their half hour newscasts about these people, but I would hope some of the cable networks really do highlight those people regularly because believe me, it's not us who are putting our life on the line. It's these people. So I would just get off my high horse to say that. Um, more than high horse to have because I would say networks are covering that because the reason why we were able to have some Passover dinner last night is because of these people who allowed the food supply chain to continue. So, you know, a lot of people said that this coronavirus will, you know, forever change our outlook in life. And one of those changes that I hope occurs is that these workers that we used to deem, you know, like insignificant, you know, just like minimum wage, entry level jobs, we now look at it in a new light and say, like, my God, like, we, we're almost running a house of cards and these people are keeping the house afloat. But hopefully we start treating these workers with a little more respect and dignity. I hope so. But uh, considering with the minimum wages federally, I don't have high hopes. I mean, don't forget Mitch McConnell. And again, I'm going to get a little partisan here, but just killed legislation to help some of these people out, um, unfortunately, which is just mind boggling to me because I don't know who he thinks is feeding him and his family. But it's it's certainly people like that. Um, I'll tell you, I went to Mount Sinai Hospital today, Emily knows this, to donate blood because I was never able to get a test because there, there was such a shortage of tests when I went, but uh, all indications showed that I had the coronavirus last month. And so there's an experimental uh, drug that they're trying to develop or some sort of experimental treatment at Mount Sinai using antibodies from the blood of people who've recovered from the COVID-19 virus and giving it to people who are really in bad shape right now uh, and fighting it. And what's so fascinating to me is as I was giving blood, I was talking to this nurse, um, this this elderly African-American nurse who probably makes, you know, not nearly enough money to be putting up with people who are positive coronavirus patients. And I said to her, how are you guys handling all of this? And she said, I've had it. Everybody here has had it. And if we haven't had it, we have it now. We're not working here. And I said, well, how do you, did you function? How did you, did you go to work? And she said, I had no choice. Yeah. And she was wearing this little flimsy mask. These little, you know, these are not the big masks that everybody talks about, but this little tiny flimsy 
cloth mask. And ironically enough, she's literally taking blood from people who are positive, who are supposed to be coronavirus positive patients who've allegedly gotten over it, but who knows? They may not have been. So it's just amazing to me um, as to what's going on in New York. Then when I walked out of Mount Sinai, what do I see across the street? But the Samaritan's Purse field tent hospital that's been set up. Have you guys seen that? Mark, I know you're in New York. Have you seen this this field tent hospital? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it in person, but I've seen the photos of it being set up. It's just incredible. You feel like you're in a Civil War reenactment. I mean, they literally look like those field tents that you'd see in those old Civil War pictures. And again, I mean, it's just amazing that this is the greatest city in the world um, where hospitals are so overwhelmed that they're having field tent hospitals set up outside of a major hospital, Mount Sinai in the Upper East Side. And um, that you have people who are saying, no, New York doesn't need all the ventilators that Andrew Cuomo is requesting when, in fact, yes, they do. They certainly do um, for having field tent hospitals set up. So kind of a kind of a scary time to be here in New York. I wish more people around the country could experience what we're seeing and therefore maybe understand what a dire and awful situation this is. And we're the canary in the coal mine. It's coming west. I mean, it's headed for them if they don't take it. Yeah, I was going to say, unfortunately, it looks like other cities will will experience it. And uh, they'll probably learn from our mistakes and see them, you know, see what we did right, see what we did wrong, because we were kind of the guinea pigs for America. Well, I wonder if they'll see it, because, Emily, uh, in your home state of Florida, where you've been exiled for how long now, like a month? How long have you been down there? Almost a month now. Um, Yep. In about four days, it'll be a month. But. I mean, our, our governor is still allowing Easter Sunday masses at churches to happen. DeSantis declared church an essential activity. And I remember he said, I don't think the government has the authority to close a church. So I don't know how much they've learned. Are, they, it's offer- too late. <laughs> Are they offering communion at these masses? I'm not sure. Because that to me seems incredibly dangerous. Yeah, that's that's Russian roulette right there with 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 the community for the priests, right? For the for the never mind for the people who show up or for the priests, but um, but what's interesting to me is yeah, you do have the state of Florida. Uh, for you talked about Ron DeSantis, your governor, but he is absolutely engaging in Russian roulette on a daily basis. I don't know how much they have learned. I mean, didn't he just admit a few days ago that he just learned that asymptomatic people can pass this along? Correct. And also, I believe that was the governor of Georgia, right? No, I think that was Emily's proud home state of Florida. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is Georgia. But go ahead. Yes. Well, um, well, also what's happening here is when Rick Scott was governor, he completely uh, the unemployment uh, benefits for Floridians are he gutted the system. He decided to cut benefits significantly for workers amid high unemployment to maintain low taxes on businesses. So right now there are massive lines and we've been seeing this around the country, but specifically in Florida, there have been crazy lines that look like the voter lines in Wisconsin of people trying to wait and get their food. And it's really, really bad. Just the the infrastructure to handle this is not is not there. And learning from New York and seeing what happens when infrastructure isn't set should be what the governors are doing. But as I'm seeing now, it's not. How much of this do you think, uh, I remember when Hurricane Sandy hit uh, here in New York back in 2012, this was like the biggest news that ever hit America of worse. <laughs> Other hurricanes happen around the country. We kind of pay attention to them and move on. Um, how much of this do you think it's is because New York is the media capital of the world um, and certainly of the country and, and it's hitting New York so much? Do you think if New York flattens the curve and this moves on to the Midwest, that the news industry, which will obviously still still spend time talking about COVID, but do you feel like it'll still be able to focus on other things or, or this is just New York driven to some extent? Well, it depends if you want to include the economy under the corona umbrella. So mm-hmm. I personally do because it's the whole chain reaction effect, right? Sure. So if we're if we're not only entering a recession, but we're also we you know, some economists say we might entering like a depression type thing. The numbers that we saw today, I believe it was 6.6 million people filed for unemployment last week alone. And that's on top of the millions that filed for unemployment the week prior. So I personally look at that once again as the under the corona umbrella. How can you talk about anything else for the next few weeks? We're going to be stuck in this for 
months. It's, I mean, <laughs> when I think about the stuff that we were talking about a month ago, everything's put on pause. It's, it's really, have you ever experienced anything like this? I mean, even after 9-11, I'm not sure how old you guys were during 9-11. I know, Emily, you were very young, but I don't even remember that 9-11 sucked the news, everything out of the news for as long as this did, or this has. I mean, 9-11 happened. It was certainly the dominant, dominant topic of discussion in the news, but there were other things being talked about. But this is just something incredibly surreal. It's almost like a nuclear attack has happened. Um, I don't know how else to describe it. It just completely well, changed. Back, there's, there's no end point. We, at least right now, there's no, there, there is, we don't know. We'll say at least at this state, we can start going to X, Y, Z. It's, you know, hopefully, hopefully there will be an end point soon. But when that is, your guess is as good as mine. Well, I know, I know other news has been put to the side, but I do want to mention Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Yeah, it, kind of after Super Tuesday, I kind of felt, well, that was that. N- not the biggest fan of him, you know, saying I'm still going to stay in the ballot, you know, just looking at a few more delegates because, you know, you kind of would want some unity at this time. But Bernie dropping out, I would say if he was going to drop out, I thought he would drop out before Wisconsin, because if all these people are about to risk their lives to go out and vote, you know, and not socially distance, not socially distance themselves, I feel like that was time to do it, you know, just before Wisconsin. Do you feel like Bernie had the right message, but was the wrong messenger? Or do you feel like the country is not ready for his message yet? I guess that question is to both of you. I think he was both the wrong messenger and the message, the message People do need change, and I think they need it more. He's talking to the people who haven't had a voice or who have been ignored, and I think that message needs to be here. And the more, because the system has been failing them for a very long time and has maintained the status quo, both Republican and Democrat. So I think the message has to be heard, but I think he he isn't the right person, wasn't the right person to be dispensing it. Uh, one... I feel like the some of the problems that Bernie had on him in 2016, he was not quite able to wipe away in 2020. One big thing of that was this whole idea of uh, toxicity around his campaign. And like, sure, you have some extremely online people, you know, being fairly aggressive. Um, But, you know, his campaign did not do the best. I mean, he did his best. I mean, he did try to distance himself, but the, the, the attempts felt kind of far-fetched uh, when he tried to distance himself from that. The second problem was I didn't think he surrounded himself with the best campaign people. Um, they, were, they, were, they kind of adapted that extremely online personality where it was us against the world. When you're, when you're building a presidential campaign, you have to build a coalition. And the people that Bernie surrounded himself with um, they kind of had those extremely online personalities where it was somewhat divisive. It was kind of the us against the world mentality. And when you're running for president, you can't have that. So, you know, sure, his message might be for the working class, but you really have to tone down the rhetoric. And even though your candidate might be having the right rhetoric, if the people around you are kind of spoiling that, it's spoiling it. Does anybody have a problem with Bernie running for the Democratic nomination, but failing to register as a Democrat and failing to join the party and change it from the inside rather than do a hostile takeover from the outside? Was that something that ever bothered you? It bothered me. That's actually the thing that bothered me the most about him, which I understand is kind of a small petulant thing when you think about all the issues that he raised. Um because I do think the issues that he raised were important and I agree with a lot of them, but I, something stuck in me that I just didn't like that this seemed to be more a hostile takeover than a let's all work together to move the party to the left by a Democrat, which is why I ask whether he himself perhaps is not the right messenger. Is I know for, for, me, for me, it didn't bother me at all. Um, I, I would say that some of Bernie's platforms are inherently not part of the Democratic Party platform. So if he were to be part of that party, um, it 
it, it wouldn't make it wouldn't make sense. I mean, it's the, it's the problem of having a two party system in this country where you where it essentially boxes you in. And it, yeah, he's close to the Democrats, but the fact that he doesn't call himself a Democrat or a registered DNC member, maybe it's a, Emily. You might agree. Maybe it's a generational thing, but like that doesn't mean like anything. It doesn't register for me. I don't know. I found him to be just a curmudgeon, and I think he was a career politician who. I do appreciate that he was consistent on what he believed in, but he didn't get anything done really for the past 25, 30 years. So again, right, but did it bother you that he didn't call himself a Democrat? I mean, it was the only way for him now to be seen or to get traction, but eh, yeah. I don't know. You're, you may be generational. You're right. And it also may be that unlike you guys who are in the news business, I've spent, my career <laughs> getting Democrats elected and being in the Democratic Party. So I, I, I might take it more seriously as a result of that. But, um, you know, and, I, and I've been insulted as an establishment Democrat. So what do I know? But, um, uh, you know, look, I think ultimately it's interesting to me. Is Joe Biden somebody that both of you are passionate about or just a matter of, of, of he's he's not as bad as Trump? Does he jazz me up like other candidates did in the past? Nope. Is he competent? Can he get things done? I think he will surround himself with talented people. So that's, but am I inspired? Not quite. It's interesting to me because there's a poll out by, I believe it was ABC Washington Post last month, um, where 20% of Bernie supporters said that they would vote for Donald Trump. That, that kisses me. But I don't believe I don't believe that. They said the I'm same a little thing. skeptical of that. Yeah, I don't I, believe that. Because we didn't see those numbers with Hillary. I mean, we sure there were some defections, but we didn't see those numbers with Hillary. So if you don't see those kind of numbers with Hillary, I doubt it you'd see it with Biden. Yeah, I mean, 6%. The one thing that I that drives me crazy, and I saw this from a lot of Bernie supporters, and I hope to God that they will now stop, and I wish they hadn't started, is this whole mantra of Joe Biden is senile, Joe Biden's losing it, Joe Biden. It's, it's the same nonsense that Trump is repeating. And as somebody who's known Joe Biden for over 20 years, I can tell you he's none of those things. He's just not erudite. He's just not a good speaker. Um, but it drove me crazy when, people, when, when these Bernie supporters would say, oh, yeah, he's mentally ill. He's had a stroke. It's because he's old. It's because he's that. I knew him when he was in his 50s. And let me tell you something, his 40s, he was... He's always been that way and he's never been not, he's just not an erudite guy. So I really, that's another thing of you talking about some of the Bernie online supporters, those people did not do themselves or the rest of the, or the rest of us many favors by pushing that mantra because it's a complete. Yeah. If you notice those attacks really came like after super Tuesday when they kind of felt, I'm not justifying it because I hated those attacks just as much as you. Yeah. Um, they, it was just pure desperation. Once again, does not make it right, but they just sunk down to the same level as, you know, kind of those Trump supporters editing videos. Yeah, but desperation, desperation is when you're worried that Donald Trump's going to win. Desperation's not going after another Democrat. Again, life is not about, this is, you know, maybe because I'm, I'm older, but life is not about the perfect dream candidate. It is truly about choices that we all have to make. And, and I just feel like a lot of these people don't understand that this is a choice. It's a choice between two imperfect people. I can't, I, I cannot remember the last time I got passionate about a candidate. I wasn't passionate about Barack Obama. I remember everybody thought he was the second coming. I thought he was just a politician. They all are. These people who are obsessed with Donald Trump and think he's the second coming. He's not. He's just a guy. I don't care how much you love him or agree with him. Um, and I wish people would stop because whenever they do that, everybody else becomes the antichrist. Um, whereas to me, Bernie Sanders was an imperfect candidate. Joe Biden's an imperfect candidate. Donald Trump's an imperfect candidate. Barack Obama was an imperfect candidate. Gotta vote for the guy you think is the least bad out of all those people and not for some dream guy. And if your dream guy is not going to, you're not walking down the aisle with these people, you're renting them hopefully for 48 years. Um, and that's the only way to look at it. I think that's, and, and I agree. I think, you know, maybe Bernie was your guy, but if Biden and he was going to move your agenda forward 20 steps, but Biden will only do it three better still go with Biden and get it moved forward 
then I would argue to vote for Trump, who will not move it forward and perhaps move it back 20 steps. Perhaps. Here's what I'll say. Joe Biden in the next few months has to do a really good job somehow of, yes, maybe he won't move the uh, move forward 20 steps to the left, but he has to somehow prove that he might move those three to four steps to the left because those Bernie or bus people or those like really extremely online Bernie people in their eyes, whether you like it or not, believe that Biden will change nothing will change nothing. I'm not saying that that's what I believe, but I'm saying there are a lot of people who believe that. And Biden's work is cut out for him. It's going to take a little more than saying, I see you, I hear you. He's going to have to prove it somehow. Here's the problem to me. That's what a lot of people thought about Hillary Clinton. They didn't think she was going to move and change anything. <clears throat> and even if you subscribe to that notion, she was not going to change anything from what Barack Obama did. Now... Do you really believe that Joe Biden's not going to change anything from what Donald Trump has done for the last four years? And that's what these Bernie bros have to get. Um, it's not a question of Joe Biden, as Emily said, being in lockstep. It's a question of do you want four? Can you imagine four more years of Donald Trump unleashed? My bigger concern is not that. My bigger concern is if Donald Trump, who won four years ago, still said the election was invalid because 3 million people voted fraudulently because all these illegal, as he calls them, illegal immigrants, voted illegally, 3 million of them. Clearly, that's why he lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton. If he says that having won, can you imagine what he will do if he will lose? And do we really see a scenario, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but then again, I never thought I'd be stuck at home for a month with a crazy plague. Um, <laughs> do we really believe that he's going to willingly leave the White House? And if he doesn't, or somehow casts his defeat as illegitimate, do we anticipate some sort of civil unrest bordering and rioting, the likes of which our generation has never seen, something resembling the 60s or worse? Is that something that you guys think about? Actually, it's a good question, Mark. Is that something that you guys at CBS are, are even contemplating as a scenario or, or something in the news that you might be thinking about deploying your resources to cover in November? Not right now. I mean, it's obviously it's way too early to, to do that. I mean, I could totally see those Trump tweets, you know, like a week before, you know, starting to, you know, say, oh, I'm sensing election fraud. Then maybe we can have that conversation. Um, but right now it's way too early in the game for that. Uh, thank God, at least. Um, but one thing I want to go back to what you said about, you know, what Bernie supporters need to realize is, you know, about, you know, another four years of uh, Trump would be like. Ultimately, I know what you're saying, right? Um, it, it makes total sense. I'm not denying that for a second. What I would push back on is the effectiveness of that argument, because um, even though I, I'm telling you it's logical, these supporters of his don't want to feel lectured at. And I know it's boo-hoo too bad, you know, what's worse. I get that. These people want to see some kind of incentive of how it's going to make their life better. No and right now, whether we like it or not, they don't see that difference between Trump and Joe. Obviously you do. Obviously we, we see the differences, right? Because we're, we're in this every single day. You know, this is our lives. We have a, we have a very acute expertise on this, but I'm telling you these hundreds of thousands of people or whatever percent percentage it is, they need a little bit more. And I, I, I think the Biden campaign does realize that, um, but it's it, it's going to take a little more than do you want more, four more years of Trump? That's not going to work. Um, you know, Susan Sarandon, who may be among my least favorite people in the world, um, recently said something along those lines that she doesn't see a difference. I, I don't know if she said she'd actually vote for Trump, but she might not vote or I forgot what she said. But something very similar to what you're saying. And I would say that it's very easy for Susan Sarandon to say that Susan Sarandon has a lot of money. She is a white woman. She lives in New York slash L.A. Her life is going to be just fine and it has been just fine over the last four years. But those people that, who we just talked about earlier, the people in manufacturing, the people in the food supply chain, the people making minimum wage, people who are keeping the rest of us alive, the nurses, uh, the doctor is getting paid half a million a year to do cardiac surgery, if not, you know, a million. 
But this, the nurses who are, are coming to work every day with a flimsy mask, uh, the people who are picking our strawberries, I can go on. Um, those people are not Susan Sarandon. And I'm not sure that those people can afford four more years of Donald Trump. And look, has my life, my personal life drastically changed much since Donald Trump's been president? Not at all. It hasn't, aside from the fact that my taxes are higher because of this dumb tax bill, um, because of the lack of salt deduction. But that's really a 1% salt personal problem. Um, Susan Sarandon's hasn't changed at all either. But are those people in jeopardy? They sure as hell are. And if Bernie throws and the rest of these people who are crying about how they're not seeing much of a difference and they need something more, if they only contemplate themselves and their privileged position, and they're not contemplating the people who are literally keeping them alive right now by providing food for them, driving trucks to deliver that food to the supermarket, then, uh, you know, now is really not the time to engage in molly coddling. Is that a word? But engaging in this like, oh, well, the Bernie, bro, you know, these people need more. You're absolutely right. They do need more. And, I, and I'm, I'm saying this out of frustration. If I were running the Biden campaign, believe me, I would be spending 24-7 finding out what they want. But I will actually put the onus not on Joe Biden. I will put the onus on Bernie Sanders. He cannot do what he did in 2016. He cannot go out. He's luckily he's not. He's not dragging this out to the convention. He's hopefully not going to allow the booing of Hillary Clinton or, or in this case, Joe Biden that went on in 2016. He better get out there on the stump every day and convince his supporters because he's the only one who can that there is way too much at stake. And if Joe Biden needs to give him some sort of title or commitment in the cabinet, um, not as vice president, because that's going to go to a woman, luckily, but some sort of commitment to placate or to get him more invested. I hope he does. But I would put the onus not on Joe Biden. I would put the onus on Bernie Sanders. He's 70 something years old. This is his legacy. And he needs to understand that. I mean, I agree with that. And and, Bern, and Bernie does have a responsibility to do that at some point sooner rather than later. But as long as the Biden campaign knows that the argument of the one another four years is not good enough. Oh, I'm sure they do, because I'm sure they focus groups it, and I'm sure they, they they probably understand what the argument is. But I think Bernie has a big role to play here. And I think Bernie's role is to go out there and sell it to the very, very many millions of people, a lot of whom are on my social media and a lot of whom I'm very close to, who are devastated, truly devastated about him dropping out, truly devastated that he dropped out before they could vote for him, um, truly devastated that a dream that they thought was within reach two months ago where it looked like he might be the nominee is gone. Um, only he, only he can tell those people that it's going to be okay. Only he can mobilize those people. Joe Biden could do what he can do the same way the Clinton campaign did what they could do. But those people mistrust the establishment and maybe, and look for good reason. The DNC's behavior four years ago was atrocious. And I'll be the first to say that. Um, the DNC's behavior this time around hasn't been much better by allowing Michael Bloomberg on the debate stage when a lot of other people and candidates of color didn't qualify under the same criteria that they allowed Bloomberg on the debate stage for. Um, there is a massive mistrust among Biden's, among Sanders supporters of the establishment, and understandably so. The establishment can't sell it to them. Bernie's got to sell it to them because nothing that Joe Biden's going to promise to them is anything that they're going to believe. I, that's my opinion. Do you think Bernie understands that, though? Do you think Bernie knows that? Or is it like a matter of someone like a Barack Obama getting on the phone and being like, listen? Oh, Bernie hates Barack Obama. Bernie's not going to. Bernie wanted to primary Barack Obama. Bernie, there's nobody. I don't. I think the only person. Bernie like how does he get outside to... of his own self with that? I think. Uh, well, I think he's got one of my personal opinion is I think he's got one of two choices to make. And you guys tell me whether you agree or not. Um, maybe I'm a little harsher than I should be on this, but he can either, as I said at the beginning, choose to reform the party from the inside by doing what I just suggested, or he continue to throw stones from the outside. Continuing to throw stones from the outside will make him look like the revolutionary that he wants to be um, and his supporters subscribe to him being um, and maybe not a sellout which is where some of them might believe that he is if he starts. I'm not suggesting he become a Democrat, but I'm suggesting that he go hand in hand with Joe Biden on a daily basis. 
to his supporters and, and, and engage them on behalf of Joe Biden. Um, he's got to decide what he wants to do. He's got to decide whether he wants to work with the establishment to win this election or whether he wants to continue this revolution and be much like speaking of speaking of the Exodus story, be like much like Moses in the promised land where he looks across the, the sea or across the Jordan River at the promised land, but never sets foot there. He never becomes president himself, but he continues a movement where in four years after Donald Trump's second term, somebody either he himself or somebody like him who he puts his hand on their shoulder becomes the nominee and wins the election. Um, he's got a choice to make. And I think it's a, it's it's not an easy choice. I understand where he's going. I understand that if he suddenly starts joining the establishment um, and espousing Biden talking points for his supporters, that it diminishes his revolutionary zeal. It diminishes the odds of the revolutionary part of the party taking over the party. Um, so it's a question of whether he can afford to wait four more years for for himself or somebody else to to be the nominee. Does that make sense? I don't. It does, but I just don't see, oh, at least in this universe, um, Bernie embracing any form of the DNC. I mean, yeah, I, I see him endorsing Biden in some capacity. It might not be the warmest endorsement, but I, 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 I don't see a warm makeup kiss with the Democratic Party at all. Uh, there's just way too much bad blood built up over the decades. Um, and... And he's very uh, aware where his supporters stand. And if he were to go hand in hand with the DNC, uh, I, his supporters would take it worse than him dropping out yesterday, like not even close. It would be it would be seen as a, a betrayal like no other. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying from from where I stand and from what I've like researched from looking at you know, these groups from above, there's no way they'd accept that in a million years. Even though he said that that Donald Trump is, I think, believe his words were existential threat. Um, I mean, you could do both. You can you can you can believe that. And also, you know, it's not, it's not, I don't think he sees it as a binary choice. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying from his point of view, it's not a binary choice. He could still endorse but not get in bed with the DNC. But endorsing would require, uh, I guess that's the question. Endorsing is what he did with Hillary, right? He endorsed, he did a couple of rallies, I think, or a couple of speeches, and then that was that. But that wasn't enough. 6% of Democrats voted for Trump. Um, a lot of his supporters, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a significant amount, voted for Jill Stein. And the question to me is, is he going to allow that to happen again in order to have a, the talking point in four years, which is that, listen, the establishment in the, in, in the guise of Hillary Clinton, or even further back, the establishment in the guise of John Kerry could not beat a Republican. Um, Barack Obama was considered an outsider. He won. The establishment in the guise of Hillary Clinton could not beat George Bush. Um, sorry, excuse me, could not beat Donald Trump. The establishment of the guys of, of Bernie's of, of Joe Biden could not be Donald Trump. You need to nominate me or somebody like me, um, a revolutionary, in four years in order to win the White House. Uh, is that a better argument for Bernie Sanders and his supporters, just holding their nose for four more years, or do they consider and does he consider Donald Trump such an existential threat that he has no choice but to hold his nose? And really pump up this establishment figure, Joe Biden, who stands for virtually everything that he doesn't stand for historically, not now, but everything, you know, from from criminal justice reform to um, banking issues to 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 trade to everything. This is something that just has been he and Biden never saw eye to eye on a lot of these issues. Um, where does somebody like Bernie Sanders land on that in these very it's critical times. This is not a George Bush situation. This is not a George W. Bush situation. This is Donald Trump. Um, I, I just don't know the answer to that. That's what I, that's my question. Where is Bernie Sanders head with respect to that? But it, everything you're saying, it, it makes sense. But you also kind of answered it. You know, you kind of said how their beliefs are so polar opposite. So it's why it's so impossible for me. And once again, I mean, it could happen and I could be wrong, but it's, it's, it's so hard to see 
this 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 I don't see this full embrace. I kind of give it like a 0.01% chance. Really? Okay. I think it's higher. I mean, than I that. see an, I see an endorsement, but not not they're not going to go buddy buddy, and you know they're not going to slow talk the news and Jimmy Fallon together. Let's put it like that. <laughs> it's not going to be a Thelma and Louise speaking of Susan Sarandon. <laughs> no, no, no. So, Mark, how many people at CBS are out in the field right now risking their lives to bring us the news? Because I, be- I don't know about CBS, but I, I know that I believe both ABC and NBC had um, cameramen who, who passed away from this virus. Um, I believe both African-American, which that community has been so disproportionately affected by this virus in, in awful ways, not surprisingly, um, considering lack of access to health care and other um, underlying issues that that community's had, but it's, it's always the people you don't see, right? It's always the people. It's not the people in front of the camera. I say this as somebody who was in front of the camera. It's always the people who are running around, setting up the shot, speaking to, um, you know, doing advanced work, uh, these unheralded people. And I really hope more people who watch the news understand that. Um, I had this conversation with somebody on social media about Fox saying, yeah, the people that you see on Fox, the talent, they may have cars and car services coming for them. Everybody else has to take the subway to get to where they're going to work, to bring you the news. Um, whether it's the floor director, the floor manager, or the guys running the camera or everybody else. And, and I, I, w- I hope that people who watch the news, which has gone up exponentially since everybody's been stuck at home, appreciate that and understand that. I know you do, obviously, because these people all work for you, but um, it's not just the Nora O'Donnells or the Gail Kings or the you know people in front of the camera, the glamour shot people. It's those people from the makeup artists to, to the camera guys who make them all look good and made the rest of us look good. So, so that's my little- So two things. So, so one, with the increased viewership you talk about, I hope that some people, some Americans can see the army that it takes to put on a newscast. It's like you said, it's not just the anchors or the reporters in the field. It's the producers, it's the camera guy, it's the sound guy, it's the production assistant, it's the editor, it's the assignment. It's, 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 it, it, it takes an army that, you know, our, our president Z says that all the time. She always says it takes an army and it's, it's, it's so true. And I, I would also be uh, remiss if I didn't mention that, uh, CBS News also lost someone really, really special to us, um, Maria McCater. Um, oh, yeah. She was a right. VP of talent who um, I knew I knew pretty well. And she had such an amazing spirit and just such a great person. And it just shows how this disease is just impacting so many people. And, you know, at, at this point, it's hard to find a person who doesn't know someone who lost somebody to this disease. Yeah. Yes, that's right. She did. And I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that. Of course, she was a, a very prominent person, I think, at CBS, um, who a lot of people encountered over the years, and I think was a mentor to a lot of people, right? Especially to a lot she of women. Was out indeed. There. Um, but you're so right. I mean, those of us in New York either know somebody directly or have a one degree of separation. It's almost like 9-11, where you know somebody or know somebody who was very close to somebody who's passed away from this disease and it doesn't discriminate. Um, as I said, you have cameramen, you have, uh, you have executives, uh, news executives, you have a teacher at my son's school who I, who I didn't know, but was apparently beloved, um, and a longtime teacher. There almost a four decade teacher there. Um, and so on and so forth. And I, it's, it's scary how this just kind of puts its hand on somebody's shoulder, not, by design, obviously, but completely randomly. It's, it's actually terrifying. Um, I said I, I have say- hope with that. Uh, since so many of us know somebody who might have passed or that one degree of separation that you talked about, it's easier to get things done when you felt an impact. So when we talked earlier about, you know, uh, these essential workers being treated properly after this is all said and done, when the smoke clears, then will be the best time in our lifetimes to, you know, to treat these people as they should. So I, I hope you're right. I, I truly, I think what you said is the most important thing that's been said on this podcast in a long time. That I hope people do appreciate these people and understand 
that all of us who are sitting in the comforts of our house, Skyping each other, would not be here without them delivering food to us, um, checking us out at the supermarket, getting our coffee <laughs> delivered, and, and, and making the internet run on time and, and well, and climbing up on those poles with face masks to make sure that power outages don't happen. Um, so that's a very good point. On that note, give us some good news throughout this crisis. Hmm, the good news that's happened throughout this crisis, I think one good thing is we have this reminder of not only how important the health is to ourselves and our family, but I think we see, you know, in the technological era, you know, how important it is to connect with our friends and family. And I think, you know, you know, I have so many friends that I've, I haven't talked to in so long that are reaching out, just wanting some kind of connection. And I, I think this allows us to connect with the people we care about and be prioritize what's really important in life now. And it's not about, you know, necessarily like where you end up in life, in, in your career. It's about the connections you make along the way. And I think this, this, this illness has really brought that to the forefront. So we, we, we got our priorities in straight and we now have our friends and family closer than they've ever been in our lives. And I think that's in a way a blessing throughout the, throughout this entire curse. That's a great, great point. Emily, what's not making you salty? What's making you sugary this week? Um, give, give us some good news. Yes. Other than you, your love for, for the sunshine state. Uh, my my cousin, she is a junior at Georgetown and didn't really have anywhere to go. Her dad works overseas. And anyway, she is staying with us and I'm getting to reconnect with her and have like a playmate down here, which is great. But it's really cool to then also talk to somebody in college. She's taking all these different uh, psychology courses and stuff like that. So to just have intellectual conversations with like a college kid and go walking has been really keeping me in a mentally healthy state. Fantastic. What's her name? Her name is Isabella. Very, very nice. Um, so the one thing that actually is making me very happy this week is I have a, my oldest, closest friend, um, who's been my best friend since the eighth grade, um, whose father is Egyptian. And I started a tradition back in 1992, and we started this tradition for a very funny reason. She was at Cornell. Um, I went to school in Boston, which is not close to Ithaca, New York, which is where um, her school was. But right around Passover, not around, around Passover in 1992, she drove from Ithaca, New York to Boston. It just so happened to be Passover. It just so happened that we were underage because we were 19 or so. Um, it just so happened there was some guy whose name I can't remember who had a crush on me who was under over 21. And so we exploited him to get us alcohol. Um, and so as a result, we decided to have a Seder. And I'm Jewish. She's Egyptian. And um, we had the Seder with a bunch of other random people there. And we've had this tradition ever since then of having a joint Seder. Um, and she does the Egyptian rebuttal after the Haggadah. Um, which is great. And um, this tradition has been going on except for years where she's lived abroad or has been abroad um, for now, God, almost 30 years. And we obviously couldn't be together in person this year. So we had a Skype Seder um, to keep the tradition going. Both of us now have kids. Um, her son is four. So we skipped over the slaying of the firstborn because obviously... <laughs> That would, that would have been hers. Um, but, but, uh, but it was nice. It was wonderful. And uh, a whole bunch of people joined us, um, including my friend, Bill, who's a big Catholic who always leads our Seder because he doesn't drink. So he does it sober. And, uh, we've convinced him to do that because we try to recreate the last supper for him. So it's this very, um, mixed marriage type ecumenical, Seder, and I'm so, so happy that we got to do it yesterday. Um, it, even at a time like this, we were able to talk about the 11th plague, which is the coronavirus, but um, our kids joined, everybody, all the friends joined online over Zoom, so it was really wonderful. I think we need to be ending salty politics with a happy thought at the end of, <laughs> I think as right. long as coronavirus is happening. I think that's our new tradition. Yep. All right. Sugar. Little sugar. Mark, awesome. 
thank you so much for joining us. And um, thank good you luck. for inviting me. Yeah, thank you to everybody, to you, especially at CBS, to everybody there for bringing us the news every day and for doing it bravely and courageously and at great personal risk and peril. Um, so thank you on behalf of your viewers. I'll, I'll thank everyone on your behalf. And uh, once again, thanks for having me. Thanks very much. See you, Bye.